Amen. I'm going to invite Dave up now. Uh, He's going to be kicking off the second sermon in our series on Luke. Why don't we welcome him up as he comes. I love getting welcomed. It's nice. feels like I'm a traveling preacher again. It's so nice. You get such zeal when you travel. It's like, I remember once in Arizona, well, I can tell you the story now because I've started it, but just before they welcomed me, they're like, we're going to invite Dave up now. And just as that happened, I started to get a full-on nosebleed. That was really awkward. For the first 10 minutes, I'm just like, so, so God said. It was really embarrassing. (laughs) Praise the Lord, that's never happened here. Well, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 1. If you're making notes, I've called this message Mary's Song, and we are going to be continuing in our series through the gospel of Dr. Luke. Last week, we looked at two incredible announcements, world-changing announcements before the Lord. We had Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, turn up to Zechariah and prophesy to Zechariah that he would, with Elizabeth, have a child and they would call him John. And then Gabriel turns up to Mary, this 15 to 16-year-old virgin, and tells her that she is also to have a baby and she will call him Jesus. And this is what happens next, verse 39. We're going to read to the end of verse 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months, and then returned to her home. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for its clarity. I thank you for its specificity. I thank you that as we gather around this word, we gather around truth. Truth that we can be sure of. Truth that we can be certain of. Holy Spirit, would you create that faith and surety in our hearts this morning? As we gather around your word afresh, would you fan into flame faith in our hearts whereby we know this is true? Lord, change our lives forever. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when you stop and think about it, 
we live in a world that resounds with the sound of singing. No matter what culture you're a part of, no matter what economic state you're a part of, no matter what demograph or age group, it really makes no difference. Whoever we are and wherever we are, we all live in a world that resounds with the sound of song. Imagine Christmas without carols. It would be a really sad place not to be able to actually sing carols, both Christians and non-Christians alike. Imagine birthdays without the song. We experienced that a bit during COVID. Awkward, is it not? You bring out the cake, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you. It's just really weird because we understand that we should sing. We celebrate in these moments through song. More often than not, our shops and our gyms and our cars and our homes are filled with the sound of singing. And yet I submit to you that out of all the songs we've ever heard, the song that we have before us today, namely Mary's song, is without doubt the best of them all. See, just a few days earlier, the angel Gabriel appeared to this 15 to 16-year-old Mary in Nazareth and told her that she was to be the mother of the long-awaited Messiah. She would conceive in her womb a baby, miraculously, because she's a virgin, and she would call him Jesus. And he himself would be the Son of God, the Savior of the whole world. This is staggering news for Mary. And she re- so she responds in verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Unlike Zechariah, who responds with doubt and then becomes a mute, Mary responds with faith and certainty. Let it be to me as you've said. I'm sure it will. I am the servant of the Most High God. And in haste then, we learn in verse 39, she arises and she heads up to the hill country of Judah to see her relative Elizabeth, who is also with a baby. Gabriel has told her that Elizabeth, your relative, she's actually six months pregnant now. And so you might want to go spend time with her. Well, Mary certainly does want to do that. The challenge is it's actually about 80 to 100 miles away. So this would be a three to four day journey. So she sets off with haste. Because she wants to encounter Elizabeth. And when she walks into Elizabeth's home, she opens the door, and there is Elizabeth before her. And as soon as Mary greets Elizabeth, it says that Elizabeth's baby, John, leaps for joy in her womb. It's literally the leap that a sheep does in a field. It's exactly the same word in this moment. John, as we know from verse 15, has already been filled with the Holy Spirit. John, even in his mother's womb, knows exactly who is in the womb of Mary. This is the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God. And so John leaps in his mother's womb, and yet he is not the only one that leaps in this moment. Look again at verse 41. It says, And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, just like her son in this moment. And prophetically, she understands exactly what has taken place. She hasn't heard prior to this moment. But as Mary walks in and her son, John, starts to leap in her womb, she understands, Mary, you're pregnant. And Mary, you're pregnant with my Lord. 
Those are staggering prophetic words in that moment. She understands that for 400 years it's been silent with a long-awaited Messiah. Just, we've just been waiting for him year after year after year. But Mary, you're carrying him. I mean, just imagine for a moment how confirming that must have been for Mary. All she said at this point is, hello. For three to four days, she's been running towards Elizabeth. She arrives, she walks in. This baby jumps in her womb. And then Elizabeth looks at her and says, you are holding my Lord in your womb. Imagine how confirming it must have been for her. She must have been probably thinking all the way, how am I going to explain this to Elizabeth? Like, there's this angel. She doesn't even need to. How confirming for Mary that this is true. The long-awaited Messiah, he is indeed in me. And also how comforting this must have been for Mary. She's 15, 16 years old. She's never been pregnant before. She doesn't even have a husband as yet. And yet she finds this elderly relative, Elizabeth, who's also pregnant for the first time, who is ahead of her in a stage of pregnancy and can help her each and every step of the way. Isn't that just typical of the Lord's care? Elizabeth confirms what Mary knows. She comforts Mary. Mary, you are holding the Messiah. And it's at that point that Mary simply cannot hold back any longer. She starts to sing. And what a song this is. At three points this morning as we look at this, look at this song. Number one, the heart of Mary's song. I want us to understand what really is this song all about, what's going on in it. Number two, the personal reasons for Mary's song. This song is deeply personal for her. And then number three, the prophetic reasons for Mary's song. But I come to this morning really with one hope. And the hope is helping us all understand as a church and as individuals, we all have a song to sing. It isn't just Mary that can sing in amazement before the Lord. We all have a song to sing. And it's worth singing. And it brings great glory to the Lord. Number one, then, the heart of Mary's song. What is the heart of Mary's song? Well, as we read in verse 46 to 47, it is indeed a song of praise. This is what we read, verse 46. And Mary said, or literally sang, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary cannot hold back any longer in this moment, and she just erupts in praise and adoration to the Lord. Given all that has already taken place in her life and in her womb, she cannot hold back but to sing to the Lord. This is a song of praise. You see, singing songs of praise, just so we're clear as we study the Bible together, is a theme that runs through the whole Bible. Psalm 47, verse 6, for example, we read, Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. Now and again, you encounter people that say, I really don't like singing. Well, that's unfortunate, because four times in one short verse, you are commanded to sing praises to the Lord. It's a command that is on all of our lives to the glory of the Lord. And when you study the Bible, there are reasons of why singing is so important before the Lord. Three reasons. I mean, first and foremostly, singing enables the Word of God to dwell in us richly. 
And we sing, it's different to just speaking, because it allows the Word of God to dwell in us richly. And that's what we see in Colossians 3, verse 16. Listen to what he says. He says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, listen, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It's a command on our lives to sing songs before the Lord. Why? Well, because it lets the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, literally the Word of God. See, singing, it helps us to remember the Word of God, doesn't it? I made this point a few weeks ago. Songs get stuck in your head, do they not? Whether we like it or not, they're in your head. Speaking to Riley Spring earlier last week, he was telling me that he found randomly the greatest hits of Hillsong through the 80s. And he put it on and played it, and he said, I was singing along with it because I remembered all the songs. Well, that's not surprising. Songs get stuck in your head. You actually don't need that as much as you think. There will be more stuck in your head than you actually realize. Singing does that. Messages don't do that in the same way. But songs, they get stuck in our head for many, many, many years. Also, singing helps us to meditate on the Word of God. That's how it lets the Word of Christ dwell in the streets. I mean, if you noticed, when we sing, we repeat lines like we would never do when we're speaking. Like we would never do when we're speaking. Like we would never do when we're speaking. It's really weird when you say it. But when you sing, we do that all the time. And we don't think that's weird at all. And also, when we sing, it enables us to linger on words and pull out phrases of words and spend longer on words, which makes a difference. So if I say to you, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. was blind, but now I see. It's meaningful. It's good. But when we sing it, it's different. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. was blind, but now I see just said exactly the same thing. And yet our experience is really different, isn't it? Singing enables the Word of God to dwell in us richly. It has a powerful effect. You know, sometimes people say, oh, I don't think singing should be emotional. God designed it to be emotional. It should be totally emotional. Singing enables the Word of God to dwell in us richly. Also, singing enables us to reflect God's glory back to Him. One of the reasons why it enables us to reflect God's glory back to him is because God himself sings. Are you aware that we worship a singing God? Because we do. In Zephaniah 3 verse 17, we read, He will quiet you with his love. He, meaning the Father, will rejoice over you with singing. I love that. We think we're singing to the Lord on a Sunday morning. If we pay careful attention, he's singing right back at you. We see in the Bible Jesus singing. Hebrews 2 verse 12 actually quotes Psalm 22. And the moment where the Son of God is described as singing the Father's praise in the midst of the congregation. Jesus himself sings before the Lord. We see him prior to the Garden of Gethsemane singing hymns with his disciples. 
And then in Ephesians chapter 5, we are told that as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, what does the Holy Spirit do? He fills us and then gives us songs to sing before the Lord. The Trinity sings. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sing. God sings. And in Ephesians 5 verse 1, we're called to be what? Imitators of God. Well, he's God who sings. And so singing enables us to reflect God's glory back to him, to do actually what he does all the time. And then thirdly, singing enables us to express our praises to a worthy God. And that is so important to understand as to what Mary is doing right here. See Colossians 3 verse 16 again. It says that we are to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's a really important point, that last statement, with thankfulness in our hearts to God. It's clear that God isn't like really impressed when we just move our lips. He's not like, man, I just love those words. Oh, so meaningful. Even though our heart is totally disengaged. No, he wants our heads and he wants our hearts. He wants both of these things totally engaged, which is why it's not just called to sing. We're called to sing with thankfulness in our hearts to the Lord. We see the same thing in Psalm 100, verse 1 and 2. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. I love that. All you shockingly bad singers out there, do not be alarmed. Just make a joyful noise. It's just a noise. Just let it be joyful. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Once again, you discover that true worship, true praise isn't just some type of cold regurgitation of words. Well, they're the words I sing. Amazing grace, so sweet the sound. That's not it. God wants our hearts involved where we go, yes, this is the truth of my life. I love this. You know, C.S. Lewis wonderful, wonderfully picks up on this in his wonderful book, The Reflections on the Psalms. This is brilliant. He says, the most obvious fact about praise whether of God or anything else, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed before that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless, sometimes even if, shyness or the fear of others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, Workers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, uh, walk, uh, w- weather, wine, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. Well, that dates this statement somewhat. <laughs> I had not noticed that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value. So they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising him. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are simply doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My friend, he's right. This world rings with praise. And if the Lord is not worthy of our praise, then we're missing something somewhere. If we're getting more excited about a rare beetle or a car or our kids than we are the Lord Jesus Christ, there's something gone wrong. Given all that he is and all he has done. These are gifts. He is the giver. 
He's worthy of all praise. And all praise by very nature, guess what? It comes out. We can't help ourselves. When have you ever been to a soccer match in your life and the team scores a goal and then the person comes on the town like, okay, everybody, Western Wanderers, let's get at it. They've just scored. Let's clap. No one ever says that. We just automatically go, yes! That's what singing is. That's what praise is. It's responding to a worthy God. And it is exactly what Mary does here. No one's instructed her to sing. She simply can't help herself. You are amazing. So my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She can't hold back any longer. She's so ecstatic about what the Lord has done. You know, the word soul and spirit there, just so we're clear, is actually, Mary's actually talking about exactly the same thing. She's actually using a Hebrew poetic par- parallelism device. So the way they used Hebrew poetry is you'd say the same thing slightly differently, and that was perfectly acceptable. But to say the same thing slightly differently, you're actually saying exactly the same thing. And soul and spirit, both occasions, mean simply the heart, the inner self. My soul, who, the core of who I really am in my heart, magnifies the Lord. The core of who I really am rejoices in God my Savior. And when she says magnifies, just so we're clear, she's not saying that her soul is making God bigger in some way. That's impossible. What she's saying is God is becoming bigger in my soul. The more I'm understanding the more I'm recognizing who you are and all you've done. Oh, my soul, the inward being of who I am magnifies the Lord. And she then rejoices in God, her Savior. She can't help herself. This song is a song of praise for Mary. It engages her head and her heart. She is all in before the Lord. And there are point two personal reasons for Mary's song. And she talks about these in verses 48 through 50, deeply personal reasons why she cannot contain herself anymore and needs to sing before the Lord. Look with me at verse 48. She says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. You know, it's incredible. The greatest responsibility ever to be received in Israel would without doubt come to one of the poorest of its people. And that's Mary. And this reality did not escape her at all. She cannot believe it. You? Choose me? Give her my humble estate? Ken Hughes says it this way in his commentary. He says, from all indicators, her life would not have been extraordinary. She would likely marry humbly, give birth to numerous poor children, never travel further than a few miles from home, and one day die like thousands of others before her, a nobody and a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. Mary understands that should have been my life. I'm a nobody from a no place in the middle of nowhere. No one should ever hear of me, and yet, oh my goodness, you have blessed me with the opportunity to give birth with the Savior of the world. Oh, my soul magnifies the Lord. She cannot contain herself if she considers what the Lord has done for her. 
There's nobody from a nothing place. Everybody's going to know a name. The whole world knows the name of Mary, do they, do they not? Whatever country you're in, they all know, oh, Mary, you're the mother of Jesus. She recognizes, this is scandalous grace. I'm just a nobody from a no place in the middle of nowhere. I'm just a kid. But my soul magnifies the Lord. How can I stay silent given all that you have done for me? All that you have given me an opportunity to do before you. And she explains in verse 49 through 50 that without doubt, this is all the Lord's doing. It's not her. It's him. Verse 49, she says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She's making it clear. It's got nothing to do with me. Oh, Lord, this is all you. First and foremost, then, she draws her attention to his might, indeed his power. Mary has experienced this might and this power already at conception. In verse 35, we read that the power of the Most High will overshadow her, and at that point she will be pregnant. That has already taken place. She has discovered, as the angel Gabriel told her in verse 37, that nothing is impossible with God. She is livingly experiencing in this moment, I'm a virgin, I'm pregnant, nothing is impossible with you. She's amazed at his might, for he who is mighty, he who is powerful, has done great things for, for me. And then she draws attention to his holiness. He says there in verse 49, and holy is his name. You know, in the Hebrew language at this time, when you are calling somebody that, when you're calling their name, it's not just like I'm saying, hey, Simon, hey, Coyote. To actually call them holy, you're not just giving them a name. You're telling them who they actually are. It embodies their very character. What he's saying here is God is holy. What Mary's saying is my son is holy. She knows that the one who she is carrying, this Jesus, will be holy. He will be above and beyond all people in every way. She understands that this child who she carries will be supreme in personhood. He will be the image of the invisible God. To know him is to know God. He'll also be supreme in creation. For he will indeed be the founder, or has been the founder and sustainer, and will be the goal of all things. For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. She knows the one who has a heart that is beating in her at the moment is the one who also gave her a body and a heart in the first place, knitting her together in a mother's womb. This is staggering for her. She's amazed that she's going to hold the one who holds all creation in his hands, she's going to hold him in her hands. It's staggering. And she understands that this baby is the one who is supreme in salvation because he is the Messiah. He is the one that has been promised from long ago. He is the Savior of the world. And she recognizes, he's my Savior. I need a Savior. And I'm going to give birth to him. And so she can't help but explode in praise. He who is mighty has done great things for me. And then she starts to sing of his mercy. It says there in verse 50, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. 
Mary understood that she lives in a world, as do we, that was in desperate need of the Lord's mercy. She understood it for people. She understood it for a nation. She understood it for herself. We're all in need of the mercy and grace of God. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have rejected the Lord. We're in need of mercy. And she understands my child is the one who will bring all mercy to bear from generation to generation. She cannot stay silent then a moment longer because of these profound personal reasons in her heart. Who am I? Who am I that you look on me and my helpless estate? But he who is mighty has done great things for me. The one who is holy and merciful. She explodes in songs of praise given all that the Lord is doing in this moment for and then finally she explodes in praise because of prophetic reasons and that's my third point the prophetic reasons for Mary's song verses 51 through 55 so you'll notice as we read these verses that Mary's prophetic reasons are all past tense this is a mother that has great confidence in her Messiah son She's preaching them and singing about them as if they've already taken place, even though they are actually still to come in the future. But she is so sure that he will do this. She is so confident that this will take place. She sings about them in the past. And there's a few things that she sings about. In verses 51 to 53, she sings about how her son will completely reverse the values of the world. This is what we read about then, 51. It says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. She's singing here about how her son will completely reverse values that our world has imbibed, but he will issue in a new kingdom where it will be totally different. In verse 51, then she talks about the proud. And the proud that Mary references here are literally those who walk in prideful independence before the Lord. They're those who walk in rejection of the Lord. Those who walk then in our world today still in profound self-sufficiency, independence and autonomy, completely apart from the Lord. They live their lives as if to say, I got this, I don't even need you. In fact, I don't even think you exist. So they live proud. They walk around strutting as if they're just totally autonomous, self-sufficient, could do anything they want to do. They have no need for God, no regard for God, completely self-sufficient. Likewise, people who walk in self-glorification. See, John the Baptist, when he grew up, gave his whole life to saying, I must decrease, he must increase. The joy of his life was pointing to Jesus. And yet we tend to live in a world where the joy in people's lives is not pointing to Jesus, it's pointing to themselves. What they want, what they need, what they recognize that they think they need before the Lord. You know, the proud are those then who can work in completely prideful independence from the Lord. And that's why pride is such a big deal. John Stott says this about pride. He says, pride is more than just the first of the, of the seven deadly sins. It is in itself the essence of all sin. And it is. That's why Charles Bridges says, Pride is contending with God for 
his supremacy. It's exactly what it's doing. Walking around as if saying, I don't need you, I'm not interested in you, I got this. I'm walking around not drawing attention to him, thinking that I've created myself, I sustain myself, every good gift has come from myself, is robbing the glory that belongs to him and taking it myself. Well, God responds to that. We read that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And right here as Mary sings, she explains that my son will scatter the proud. He will indeed scatter the proud. But he will give grace to the humble and those in need. In verse 52, then she talks about the mighty. And the mighty that Mary references here are, are those who are ruling and who are in, in their ruling, for some are showing no regard at all for their need for the Lord. Because they've got everything they need. I'm a king, I'm a queen. I got it. I don't need you. I got everything I need. Whatever I need, just tell me what I need. I'll just go and ask somebody for it. He's explaining about the ruling. And she's explaining that, listen, my son will usher something different in. It won't be the ruling that are showing favor, those that show no regard for the Lord, that operate completely self-sufficient from the Lord. It will be the needy, the needy that he honors, the needy that he blesses, the needy that will inherit the kingdom of God. That's exactly what Jesus alludes to in Luke chapter 4, 30 years after this event of Mary's song. He begins his earthly ministry. And he's actually in the temple, and he's given at this moment the scroll from the priest. And this is what happens, Luke 4, verse 17 to 21. It says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. I'm sure they were. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's ushering in a new kingdom. A kingdom that will not be given favor to because you're ruling and self-sufficient and independent. All the things the world applauds. No, I've come from the poor. The needy. Those who recognize their need for a savior. Those who recognize they're sick. Those who need me. I've come for them. And then in verse 53, Mary starts to sing about the rich. And the rich, once again, who are those because of their wealth, are completely self-sufficient from the Lord. And one of the things that comes with complete self-sufficiency before the Lord when you are rich is you just have no need for him. I would have to say I've observed this in Sydney more than any time in my life just because it's so wealthy in Sydney. When we lived in Newport, UK, you'd say to people at different times, hey, listen, do you ever feel like there must be more to life than this? 99% of the time they'd say, yes, I hope so. I tried to say exactly the same thing in Sydney when I first arrived evangelistically. Hey, do you ever feel there's more to life than this? 99% of the time, people go, no, I don't. Because we're so wealthy. I don't need anything. I'll just buy it. I'll just make it possible for me. The challenge then, which is why she says, why she sings about the rich he has sent away empty. It's not because God doesn't want to bless them. It's because they never come to him. 
not interested in them. See, this is something that Jesus talks about in John chapter 6, verses 32 to 35. He's, it's the day after the feeding of the 5,000, and there's still some people gathered. Hey, listen, talk to us more about this bread. This is what he says. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is saying to them, listen, this bread that you're longing for, that you're made for, is me. I've come that you may have life and that in abundance. I am the bread of life. Turn to me and you will feed on me and you will always be satisfied in me. The rich, they never come. I have no need for you. Why do you even exist? I'll just go buy whatever I want. Whereas Mary is singing this song, recognizing that the needy will come to you. Those who are hungry, those who recognize their need for a savior will run to you and oh my, you will indeed fill them with good things. Mary recognizes before her son is even born that he will indeed scatter the proud, he will lift up the humble and he will fill the hungry. She recognizes that she will completely revert, he will completely reverse the values of the world, a world which applauds pride and might and wealth. But this is a savior that will applaud need. Come to me, all you who are needy, and I will give you rest. He's looking for a people that aren't going to be ushered into heaven because they're so wealthy or so gifted. He's looking for people that will bow their knee and say, Lord, I need you. I've got nothing. I'm a sinner in need of a savior, and you are my savior. And Mary sings, recognizes that she needs a savior too. And she sings then prophetically in verses 54 to 55, how he will indeed be the savior and how he will indeed fulfill salvation history. Look with me to 54. It says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. You've got to imagine there's been 400 years where there has been prophetic silence prior to this moment. It would be like the last thing we've heard about Jesus was in 1621. That's a long time ago. Nothing's happened. Jesus hasn't appeared. There's been no prophetic words. That mic has done nothing for 400 years. No one's been saying a thing. It's like, man, what's going to happen? And yet she recognized it in this moment that surely this is him. Surely this is the long-awaited Messiah. This is the one everybody has been waiting for. This is the one who was promised to Abraham. This is the one who was promised to our forefathers. This is the one through whom all the families of the world will be blessed. So my soul <laughs> magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She cannot hold back any longer. She's so ecstatic with all the Lord has done for her. She just explodes in song. She cannot help herself. And what a song it is, is it not? It's amazing. It's a song that comes from her heart. 
It's a song that's not just in her mind. And then she thinks, oh, you know what? He's done a lot for me. I should probably sing. That, that ain't happening. But she can't help herself. It's welling up from within. I just want to sing to you. So she does. It's a song that comes from her heart in praise and adoration to the Lord. It's a song that is deeply personal for her. As she looks on at her humble estate, who am I? Who am I that you should do this for me? And as she sings then of this prophetic ministry as well, aware that her son will bring in a complete reversal of worldly values and he will fulfill salvation history. It's an amazing song. And yet, my friends, I submit to you, this is not the only one that has an amazing song to sing. She's not the only one on the planet that has an incredible song to sing. If you are a Christian here this morning, you too have an amazing song to sing. You too have a song to sing that he is worthy of. As Mary considered her humble estate, that was part of what drove her to be so amazed. My friends, consider your humble estate. The Bible tells us you were dead in your transgressions of sin, running away from the Lord. All like sheep had gone astray. You were dead in the water and didn't care. Think about that. Your humble estate was no different to Mary's. This is something that Paul picks up on in 1 Corinthians 1. Verses 26 through 29, he says, For consider, consider, think. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. In fact, on all those things, we could probably look around and go, not many probably means none in this context. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. My friends, consider your calling. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, running far away from the Lord, completely uninterested. You are effectively a nobody from a no place in the middle of nowhere. And so am I. And yet God in his grace came after us on the greatest rescue mission ever told. And now we all have a song to sing that is both deeply personal and deeply prophetic. Deeply personal, because who are we that he should come after us? Who are we that he should save us? And deeply prophetic, because every time we sing, we point back to the cross. We point back to the moment where we realize hope has come. It is through his death that I have life, and that in abundance. It is through his death that I have forgiveness, that I have redemption, that I have adoption, that heaven is my home. We all have a song to sing. If we know Christ, we have a song to sing. My friends, church, how can we stay silent when this is what's happened in our lives? We all have a song to sing. It's as good as Mary's. It's amazing grace. And my friends, if you're here today and you are not a Christian, well, I have good news for you as well. I truly believe that God wants you to have a song too. 
And that's why the Gospel of Luke is here for you. The Gospel of Luke is written primarily to a man called Theophilus. And it's written so that he may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Well, my friends, I just taught you a bunch of stuff today. And this is written so that you may have certainty. So that you may know this is true. You know, the Bible teaches us that we were made for a relationship with God. We were meant to spend time with Him. That's when it all makes sense in our life. When we don't just know Him doctrinally, but we truly know Him. We walk with Him and know Him. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit. We actually know Him as friend and redeemer and king. The truth is, though, we all rejected that. We didn't want that. We don't want you. I want the kingdom, but I don't want the king. So we get on our lives and we start doing the kingdom thing, but then we find it doesn't work properly because we're not working properly. And God could have left us there. Because of his holiness and our sinfulness, we are cut off from God. But in his grace and mercy, he sent his son to be born through the birth canal of a virgin Mary. And then 33 years on from this moment, he would die on the cross, making it clear all the time, I'm dying in your place. I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this so you can get back into relationship with God the Father, so that you can once again know him as King and Redeemer and Lord. And my friends, the Bible is clear that when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we repent of our sin and we bow the knee to him as Savior and Lord, that we will be saved. And what you will discover in that moment is like me. You have a great song to sing. Staggering that he would save me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I want to urge you, believe in him. Entrust your life to him. And then you'll have a song to sing. My friends, we all as Christians have a song to sing. So would our souls magnify the Lord? And would our spirits rejoice in God, our Savior? Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for Mary's song. Oh, my. Lord, wouldn't we have loved to have been there? Wouldn't we have loved to hear this young teenage girl singing the glories of the King? And Lord, though we are not there in the flesh, Lord, through your word, it is as if we were there. We can see the room. We can see Mary. We can see the joy on Elizabeth's face. Oh, Lord, I do pray that as we continue through Luke, would it ever increasingly become alive in our hearts that hope has come and his name is Jesus. Oh, Jesus, would you become greater in our eyes would our souls magnify the Lord as we spend time in your word. And Lord, would we never then not want to sing? Would we never find ourselves uninterested in singing, proving that our hearts have gone cold somewhere along the line? Lord, would we spend time with you and would we engage with the truth of your word and would we find ourselves unable to do anything else but sing. Songs of adoration, songs of praise, songs that come from within. And Lord, you're worthy of them all. You are our King. In Jesus' name, amen.